So, I've basically spent my whole life in school. I went into kindergarten at the age of four, and after regular public school, I went to college and graduate school, and then I became a teacher. And despite what most people would consider to be overexposure, I still think that school is one of the greatest things that human beings have ever done. Now, I don't think I'm in the majority opinion here. I mean, what ninth grader hasn't rolled their eyes about how stupid school is? But that's just what makes me so eminently qualified to write an episode about school for a podcast of unexpected gratitudes. Welcome to I Heart This, y'all. I'm Ben Lord. Let's talk about what we love. When I was a kid, the best thing about school was getting new notebooks. Man, I loved them. All those crisp, blank pages just calling out to be filled. Some kids like to draw, and yeah, I had a fair number of doodles in the lined leaves of my Steno 5 subject, but that wasn't the real reason I loved all that fresh paper. And yeah, I also wrote the occasional story in the back pages of my math or my science notebooks, but that wasn't really it either. The big reason I got so stoked every August for back-to-school shopping was for actually taking notes. I know, right? Nerd from the womb. But it's true. I took notes on everything. My classes, of course, but not just them. I'd take notes on library books about the rise of the Roman Empire or the birds I saw at the feeder. I took notes on what Garfield did in the Sunday comics and made schemes for the most efficient way to clean my room. And dinosaurs. Of course, lots and lots of dinosaurs. That might seem like a weird thing to love. I I know, I know. But it's not that different from those fans of Mary Kondo or the self-help section of Barnes & Noble. There's something deeply satisfying about everything having its place. Something seductive about the thought that this wild and contradictory and complicated life could all somehow make sense if we could just get it organized. I just happen to have always been the guy who liked to organize ideas instead of towels and linens in the closet. After buying fresh office supplies, my second favorite thing about school was getting textbooks. Especially if they were new and I was the first person to write my name in the little plate on the inside front cover. Name. Ben Lord. Condition. New. I had barely gotten them covered with those trusty paper shopping bags before I'd start flipping through the pages, looking at the math symbols I didn't understand yet, or the diagrams of a cell, or the timelines of world history. Now here, with textbooks, were some programs you could sink your teeth into. I mean, you could learn everything there was to know. All you had to do was start at page one and work your way through step by step. All this is to say, I guess, that if anyone was ever set up to love school, it was me. Maybe it's destiny or maybe it's DNA, but there is something in me that is uniquely and inherently built for school. What better place for a guy who loves programs and systems and step-by-step directions? So why, for most of my schooling, was I so abjectly miserable. 
This episode of I Heart This, like all of our episodes, is a love story. The story of my love affair with school, but this story is a troubled one. It's not just the feel-good rom-com kind of tale. It's like less Bridget Jones' diary and more Charles and Camilla. It's a story of youthful dreams and disappointment, of being excluded and of finding my place. It's a story about what happens when one of your favorite things is taking notes. It took me a long time to appreciate school for what it really was. And here's how I got there. I'm Ben Lord. You're listening to I Heart This. On my first day at Joseph A. DiPaolo Junior High School, 11-year-old me walked into an auditorium so full that I couldn't see an open place to sit. My last school had been a tiny affair. Its entire student body would have easily fit in the first few rows here. And on top of that, it had been in another town, so... In all of that giant room's hormonal pandemonium, in that crowd of hundreds and hundreds of teenagers, I saw not a single familiar face. I knew nobody. I'm sure I was standing there frozen, wondering what to do, when a deep-voiced teacher bellowed over at me to hurry up and find a seat instead of clogging up the aisle. Once the staff had finally gotten everyone's attention, an administrator in a suit welcomed us from a podium on the stage and proceeded to lay down the law. Junior high school was different, he informed us. It was more serious, and we were expected to step up. No irresponsibility would be tolerated. This junior high school had rules to encourage us to do what was right, and if you didn't do what you were supposed to do, There were punishments. Fail to bring a pencil to class? Detention. Homework not turned in? Detention. Late to class? Detention. And to be clear, you were late to class if you weren't in your seat ready to go when the bell rang. It was quite a welcome. I mean, maybe this approach actually worked to curb the delinquency of some of my peers. I don't know. What I do know is that the terrified gerbil of my heart was so scared that for all of seventh grade, I ran through the halls to my next class for fear of being late. To be honest, I don't remember much of seventh grade, at least not in terms of actual events, but what I do remember is the tight, writhing, clawing anxiety that radiated out of my abdomen for six and a half hours straight every single day. And I remember how much energy it took to hide just how frightened I really was. It wasn't the fact that there were rules that made me anxious. I liked programs. I was so with the program. The problem was the draconian atmosphere. That there were so many punishments for making mistakes that I knew I would inevitably make. I lost my pencil all the time. And sometimes I left my homework on my desk at home instead of remembering to put it in my backpack. I was 11. And that's why I ran from class to class. And everybody else noticed. Now, I'd always been a social misfit. In elementary school, I was the kind of kid who tried so hard to make friends that I tended to make a fool of myself or to smother the person I was trying to befriend. But in seventh grade, I reached a new pinnacle of awkwardness. I was nearly a year younger than any other seventh grader and six inches shorter than most. I wore glasses 
and was in desperate need of orthodontics that I wouldn't wear until high school. And most damningly, I spent the last seven years wearing a button-down dress shirt and clip-on tie to school as part of the Our Lady of Mercy uniform. So in the early days, I wore collared shirts and plaids and sweatshirts with wolves on them. I had no idea how to dress myself like an American teenager in the late 1980s. And everybody noticed that too. There were a million reasons to make fun of me, and my fellow students found every goddamn one. The cruelty that these things inspired in the kids around me was on a scale that I had a hard time comprehending. It was like a it was like a vast conspiracy, like somehow every single one of the 600 kids in that school seemed to know that I was an acceptable target for whatever frustration they were feeling. How that could happen when most of them didn't even know my name still mystifies me. Kids would point and laugh and jeer at me in the halls for no reason I could fathom. They would grab my backpack as I raced through the halls to trip me up. They would knock piles of textbooks out of my hands. I mean, you name the stereotype of a bullied kid, and I experienced it. Right down to the kick-me sign taped to my backpack and the thumbtacks on my chair. I was so friendless and alone that in eighth grade, when for the first time in over a year, a few kids started talking to me like I was a human being, at first I didn't even answer them because... I was so sure they were just setting me up for some new kind of torment. I should have been loving school. It was a well-equipped school on a nice campus in a prosperous town. My classes were mostly good. My teachers were mostly kind. I was working hard and learning a lot. But no matter how good your attitude or how much you're a team player, no matter how much you might love to learn or how willing you are to go with the program, School is miserable if people are cruel to you. Even though that isolation was the most painful part of junior high school, there was another conflict growing between me and school as well, one that cut right to the very purpose of school. It started with the types of conversations that adults would have with me. Not necessarily the adults I knew very well, but neighbors and extended family and acquaintances that my parents had who would ask me about school and then, in short order, ask me, so, what are you thinking about doing? And by this, they only meant one thing. What are you going to do for work? Now, this wasn't unique to me, of course. The messages were everywhere. Some classmates would get paid for every A they earned, and parents exhorted kids to take school seriously because they said, school is your job right now. And the message was clear. All of those classes and rules were there for one thing. They were there to turn us into workers. I don't really know what my fellow students felt about this plan, but I found this collective obsession about my work destiny to be maddening. I was not excited to be joining the workforce. Most of the adults around me seemed stuck in lives of meaningless drudgery. I mean, they were consumed by worry and schedules and responsibilities. It was like some hypnotic spell that somehow had captured all the grown-ups around me. I didn't want to grow up only to molder away in a soulless job to pay for an oversized house, only to spend the weekends mowing the lawn and worrying about what the neighbors would think of it. I wanted something else. I wanted to, I don't know, travel light, 
follow my heart. I wanted to see beautiful places. I, I wanted to stay true to myself. I wanted to read good books and maybe write some of my own. I wanted to find a life of adventure. And if school was about the terribly serious business of making a living, I wasn't sure I wanted much to do with that. My relationship with school, about halfway through my seventh grade year, was at this low point. That's when I was admitted to the school's gifted and talented program. And I'm not exactly sure how it was determined that I was gifted or what I was gifted with, but the fact that I was had ramifications for the rest of my life. Practically, what it meant was that I could go twice a week to hang out with Mr. Cipollini, who everyone called Sip. He was a good-humored computer geek who would give us codes and ciphers and math puzzles to solve. Or, on another day of the week, I could go hang out with Miss Bourjon, who would help me write stories and tell me about how much she loved Mark Twain. What a blessed respite from the school day. It was Sip who gave me a copy of the book that would have the most profound influence on my young life, and most importantly for this tale, deeply affect the way I thought and felt about school. I bet this would be right up your alley, he said one spring day, and he handed me Tom Brown's Field Guide to Nature Observation and Tracking. And that night I settled into bed to read it. And by the second paragraph of the introduction, I had thrown off my covers and, oh my gosh, by the third, I was jumping up and down like I had found a secret map to Shangri-La. The book was a wild mix of tall tales and old-fashioned natural history and Boy Scout skills and homespun New Age philosophy, all of it dressed up in a bunch of appropriated Indian tropes. But the way Tom Brown tells it, he was taken on as an apprentice by an Apache tracker who he met in the Pine Barrens of southern New Jersey. Yeah, I know, I know. But that's what he said. And he studied under this mentor for 10 years and learned from him how to stalk so stealthily that he could creep up on and touch a deer and how to track animals and people so well that he could find the traces of their passage across bare rock and how to survive so effortlessly in the wild that he could be at home anywhere with nothing but a pocket knife. And by following the exercises in his books and putting in enough dirt time, I could learn all of that too. Someone else might have read that same introduction and written him off as a huckster or a cult leader. But I was not someone else. I was a lonely, outcast 12-year-old boy who loved nature and books and note-taking and methods. And here was this method, this perfect method, as badass as any secret Shaolin Kung Fu training. I could be the Daniel-san to Tom Brown's Mr. Miyagi or the young Skywalker to a Master Yoda, and I could climb my way out of an ordinary life to become somebody, somebody wise and powerful. But this wasn't just about mastery. It was also about purpose and meaning, and most of all, freedom. Freedom. This felt like an escape from the soulless destiny of the Connecticut suburbs, if I could live at one with the earth as Tom promised I could, then I'd never need to get a job. I would always be able to get what I needed. I would be free in a way that the people around me could scarcely imagine. Over the next few weeks, a plan formed in my mind. 
With Tom Brown's magical book in hand, I would practice my outdoor skills until I became the veritable Kwai Chang Kane of wilderness lore. I would free myself of the wage slavery that everyone else assumed was destiny. I would use the woods behind my house as a training ground and build secret camouflage shelters back there and learn to hunt and forage for my food. And then, when it came time for me to leave home, just like the David Carradine character from the old Kung Fu series, I would wander, like the wind, wherever my heart was moved to go. And I wouldn't just do this for myself. I would do it like some wilderness bodhisattva for the liberation of all. I would be a wilderness evangelist, a traveling missionary of the woods, teaching people the things that would make them just as free as I was. I asked my mom to buy every single one of his field guides, and then the books that were sold as memoirs. And, as you do, I filled notebook after notebook with outlines of each one. I recognize this as a kind of education, too. But the education that Tom Brown described was so different from what I was experiencing in school. This wasn't about earning a mark or remembering some words for a quiz. This wasn't about bells or schedules or course sequences or prerequisites. According to his stories, Tom's mentor guided him with hints and tricks. He would teach Tom only when he was certain that he burned with a need to know. As Tom says in the tracker, when he gave us a test, it was not a test in the sense that it could be graded. It was a way of knowing what to work on next. The importance of the test was not the results, but what we did with them. As you might guess, this new aesthetic was not exactly simpatico with the reality of my school life. And as junior high school gave way to high school, the tension between my view of education and society's view of education would grow into one of the biggest fights of my life. With my new wilderness perspective, I began to notice all kinds of things about school that I'd previously taken for granted. And I began to see that school wasn't just about learning. It was also about control. It's bells, it's hall passes, it's prison-like plan for exactly where every single student would be at every second of the day. It's endless list of rules, which were as inflexible as they were absurd. When my wife, Laura, was in school, she ended up in detention once because she'd been absent when the new sign-in procedure in the library had been introduced. And so she hadn't signed in the right paper at the right time when she was there. She was marked as having cut her class, which I have to point out, wasn't a class. It was the frickin' library. And despite the fact that 10 other students and both librarians could testify to the fact that she was there and had been there the whole time, no exceptions could be made. While serving this detention, she sat next to a kid who was there because he was setting the pocket of his lacrosse stick with a butter knife to hold the ball in place. He was there, get this, for bringing a weapon to school. My brother, one of the quietest and most compliant kids who has probably ever lived, once got detention for being late to school when he had taken the bus 
I have no idea if the bus driver had to serve a detention for this, but everyone else on the bus he drove had to serve one, despite the incredulous calls of our frustrated parents. Rules are rules, you know? Meanwhile, in an act of Orwellian doublespeak that would have made Big Brother proud, the high school administration instituted a program for continuous school improvement called Q+, designed to give students a voice in their school. This radical and progressive policy basically amounted to a glorified suggestion box, which, of course, students stuffed with profane and frivolous suggestions, and a few heartfelt ones that called for sensible changes, like maybe it'd be nice if students could eat their lunch outside once in a while, which were summarily ignored without official comment. And one idea, at least, I think it was about motorcycle parking, which was easy, because it only involved, like, painting some lines in the parking lot. That one was actually implemented, and our principal could trot it out every time he talked to the school board about the Blue Ribbon School. School, it turned out, was easy to criticize. It would have been so simple just to hate school in a storm of teenage peak, but as my high school career progressed, it was also a place that I increasingly enjoyed, despite myself, and for reasons that I could scarcely have predicted. First, high school just wasn't junior high school. It was huge and anonymous, but now those very things that had terrified me about junior high were now golden opportunities to remake myself. Suddenly, I was surrounded by kids who didn't know that I was the designated nerd and whipping post. And in high school, gods be praised, all of my classes were tracked. AP, honors, standard, remedial. We all got sorted into levels based on our test scores and probably last year's grades. Say what you want about the classist injustices of that system, I have no doubt that they are true but being in honors classes saved my life. Most of the bullies who had tormented me for three long years, which was probably 20% of my short life, ended up somewhere else. And I found myself in classrooms full of smart, ambitious kids who weren't afraid to take school seriously and didn't see those things as a fault in me. For the first time since sixth grade, I had people who would talk to me whose company I enjoyed. And as the semesters went by, even people I came to call friends. And on top of it, I loved learning things and reading and writing essays and taking notes. I was good. I was good at learning. And that, I, as it does for most people, made me feel good about myself. My heart was perplexed on the matter. I mean, on one hand... What a sublime delight it was to have friends after years of being shunned and humiliated. And on the other hand, we were also stuck in this atmosphere of rigid convention. On one hand, I had excellent teachers and challenging classes. And on the other, school itself was a heartless machine, twisted and bent around its own arbitrary rules like the Pharisees. I don't think these contradictions bothered other kids the way that they bothered me. If I ever voiced my ideas to the other kids in school, they were met with a polite nod or sometimes a skeptical eyebrow raise. My misgivings about civilization in general and of school in particular couldn't have mattered less to my classmates. But my parents, 
were a different story. I think they were kind of terrified. And all of that came to an explosive head toward the end of my junior year. College. College would have been the death knell of my dreams. Not only would it mean four more years of school with all that time for wilderness training wasted, it would also mean something even more terrifying. Student loan debt. At 16, here's how I understood student loan debt. One, you couldn't get a good job without going to college. Two, you can't get into college without borrowing money. Three, if you did borrow money so that you could go to college and get the job, there would be no way out of that job once you were there. Because four, that job would be the only way you could pay back your debt. Student loans weren't student assistance. They were a trap. A malicious catch-22. They were the papers of indenture that would lock you into the system until you were too old and too tired to break free. Up until I was 16, I had always been a pretty obedient kid. I was the kid who bought into the program. I mostly skipped the teenage rebellious angst that had lots of other kids rolling their eyes about how unreasonable their parents were. I'd never really fought with my parents about anything big. But I fought with them about college. Everything that I wanted out of life seemed to hang in the balance. It started one day when I was in the backseat of the car while my family was driving somewhere or other, and my mom said something that started with, when you go to college... I don't remember even what the rest of that sentence was, but I remember my response. Well, what if I don't go to college? And the air in the car got this prickly electric charge, and I could see my mom's spine stiffen. And there was this long silence before she answered, But what are you going to do instead? And so I told them about my plan to become the Luke Skywalker wilderness lore. To be clear, my parents were as loving and patient as any parents could be given the circumstances. But they were in uncharted territory. Their oldest kid had just announced that his lifetime ambition was basically to become a homeless bum. What the heck do you do with that? The college conversation lasted for months, and it settled into this uneasy stalemate. My parents would gently suggest that I reconsider, but I would not. From my perspective, I had no options. I couldn't compromise. Student debt and the indenture that it consigned me to was an all-or-nothing deal. My parents saw no other options either. From their perspective, what I was suggesting wasn't possible. And even if it was, where would I go? The wilderness was gone. In the interest of harmony, we would both drop the subject for weeks. The glossy college brochures kept arriving in the mail full of students sitting on lawns with books and perfect teeth. And I would wander in the woods behind my house and go back to my room and pour over my books looking for the secret of how to escape civilization and live a life that was wild and free. Meanwhile, the tension grew. Until it finally broke in what was the biggest fight we'd ever had. It was a late summer night between my junior and senior years. I knew a reckoning was coming. Applications would be due in a few short months, and there was no more road down which to kick that proverbial can. Mom and Dad sat me down 
at the little table in the atrium, and I brought a notebook with me, with all of my disjointed arguments written out in hopes that I could convince them not to make me go. At first, it was just like all of the other conversations that we'd had over the last few months. We said the same things, but with the deadlines looming, there was a new desperation on both sides. And then my mom asked me, so even if you don't go to college, you need some kind of plan. What's your plan? She already knew that my goal was to live this wild life, but she was asking about execution. How was I possibly going to pull this off? And I think she was trying to listen, trying to see things from my perspective. And that's when the cracks began to show. I tried to explain what I wanted to do, to find some kind of teacher to apprentice with, to learn skills from a master, and then after years perfecting them, maybe I'd start my own school somewhere. It was a plan long on dreams and short on logistics. And as I was talking it through, I think I came face to face with just how flimsy it was, how I hadn't thought that such an apprenticeship itself would cost money, and that I'd at least need a car, and that a wilderness skills school would actually be a business that would require money to get started and to run, and it would need advertising and and capital. I'd have to pay taxes. But that wasn't the worst realization. The worst realization was that the end of high school was only 10 months away, and I had no idea how to live by myself in the woods. Because living in the woods, like living anywhere, is really, really hard. So much harder than I'd thought. And after three years of practice, I wasn't even a novice survivalist. I was basically a pretty good camper. Until that moment, I'd blamed my stalled progress in not having a teacher. But as I spoke, I realized there was another serious flaw. I'd avoided the messy and frustrating work of actually learning Instead of going out and trying to start fires and turn acorns into something I could eat and keep myself warm on cold winter nights, I'd sat on my porch and read my books and taken a lot of notes. And as much as I wanted to be free, I hadn't done the work that it would take to cut the umbilical cord that connected me to civilization. And I felt despair and anger most of it directed at myself. I'd missed my chance before it had even come. I was trapped just like everyone else. And even as all of that was happening inside, I, I kept talking. By this point, I was standing in the middle of the room and gesticulating. Even I could hear the incoherence in what I was saying. And my dad interrupted. The frustration of months of arguing came through in his voice. But you can't just walk off into the wilderness, Ben. There's not enough wilderness left. And in that moment, I finally admitted to myself, even if someone could walk off into the wilderness, that someone wasn't me. Looking back years later, I wish that I could have had the perspective to say something like, you're right, you're right. I can't do that. But I really, really want to. I want it more than I've ever really wanted anything. And yeah, 
I know. I know my plan sucks. I know it. But I'm not even 17, and I've never done anything like this before, and I need your help. I need your help. But that's not what I said. Instead, the tears I'd been choking back finally spilled over, and I tore the page from my notebook, and I hurled it across the room, and here's what I actually said. I shouted it. I threw open the screen door and slammed it behind me so hard that I broke the latch. I ran off the deck and through the yard to the edge of the woods, and that's where I stopped. I thought about going on. But wasn't that just it? I didn't know how. I was a coward. And I was ashamed. My dad came to find me a few minutes later, and not knowing what else to do, I turned my back on the woods and walked to the house. If this were a fictional story, this is the point where our hero would bounce back from disaster and despair with some, you know, kind of aha moment, a realization that would help him find renewed hope and go on to victory. But this was my actual life, not a story, and that didn't happen. Mostly what happened was that I went back to my senior year of high school and avoided thinking about my future as much as I could. And mostly that was easy. I was taking great classes, lots of electives. I joined the school drama club and got a big role in the play, and I was scoring well on a whole bunch of AP exams, and most of all, I had a wide network of friends. For the first time in my whole school life, I was comfortable in my own skin. I even looked forward to sitting in the cafeteria where I could always find someone who would welcome me. And it was there, in the cafeteria, that my path took another fateful turn. So I had a crush on this girl who I sat with at lunch. This is nothing new. I had a new crush every month. And like all of my other crushes, nothing was going to come of it. I was horrendously shy, and also she was already dating someone else. And while I'd finally grown a bit taller and had gotten those badly needed braces... I wasn't exactly a heartthrob, but try telling all of that to my hormonal heart. I tossed and turned at night. I pined. I whittled little effigies out of balsam fur and thought about giving them to her as a token of my infatuation. So when this girl said that she'd found the college that she wanted to go to, its name was seared into my brain. College of the Atlantic. College of the Atlantic, or... COA, as everyone called it, was unlike anything that I'd imagined about college. First of all, it was tiny, not even 200 students strong, and it offered only a single degree, a Bachelor's of Arts in Human Ecology, which, so far as I could tell, was some kind of homebrew, interdisciplinary, self-designed liberal arts degree with an environmental bent. It held no classes on Wednesdays so that students could run the college through a big town hall-style meeting. And its campus was a row of old mansions on Frenchman's Bay just north of Bar Harbor, and it was literally just down the hill from Acadia National Park. In short, this was the crunchiest, most patchouli-scented hacky granola school you could ever imagine. It was the type of school that your parents would be justifiably skeptical of, especially if they had two more kids to put through school, and especially 
if it had a private school price tag and you had a state school budget. But maybe it's the type of school that you visit anyway if you really, really want your kid to go to college at all, and the only time in their life that they've ever sworn at you is when they were trying desperately not to go. And maybe in the calculus of parenthood, this is the type of compromise you make. Especially when, after an eight-hour drive and an interview and a campus tour, your ornery, disgruntled, somewhat antisocial, not-quite-adult mutters that maybe he could go to college if he could go to a place like this. I applied only to COA and one other school, and I got in. People who have met me later in life shake their heads in disbelief at this story. I am one of the most enthusiastic fans of school that you will ever meet. I can't even talk about college without a wistful, dreamy look in my eye. I am the type of person who would have fallen in love with college no matter where I went. But my 17-year-old self didn't know that. My 17-year-old self was enjoying senior year, but he was also still reeling from the dissolution of his dreams sometimes still clinging to them, sometimes wondering what I was going to do with my life now that I wasn't going to be a survival bum. But mostly, I was falling in love. Not the lunchtime crush who I followed to COA. She would actually go to COA, just like me, but she transferred out after a year. Now, this was a girl from the play I was in, and her name was Laura, and I actually talked to her and asked her out, and holy Jesus, she said yes, Well, actually, she said, I I guess so. (laughs) Can you even believe it? We shared a first kiss. And there is nothing like falling in love to distract you from pretty much everything else. So yeah, the end of senior year was one of the best times of my life. And so when it came time to actually physically in real life go to college, it was a disaster on so many levels. Not only was it an abject defeat in the face of the societal machine and a reminder of my utter failure to start, much less accomplish, my life's singular ambition, it was also, and worst of all, 400 miles away from the girl that I loved. If you had asked me that first year whether I was happy, I would have told you how much I miss Laura and how I only went to college because my parents made me, which for the record was totally unfair and was probably just something I said because I was ashamed of my own cowardice. What's actually happening to me was something that COA kind of specialized in. Anyone who has spent even one semester at COA could scarce escape one of the central tenets of the school's philosophy, which is most often expressed in the words of the late Professor Bill Drury. He said... When your views of the world and your intellect are being challenged and you begin to feel uncomfortable because of a contradiction you've detected that is threatening your current model of the world, pay attention. You are about to learn something. And I was very uncomfortable because I was a walking contradiction and my model of the world was in mortal peril. But COA was changing me, quietly, surreptitiously, without ever confronting my model of the world directly, 
just kept whispering to me all the time, pay attention, you're about to learn something. And that first week, I walked into the college's art gallery and right into a yoga class that would change my life and introduced me to a physical body that I hadn't even acknowledged the existence of. And David Walker, the mild-mannered and compassionate teacher, would become a friend and a mentor. COA attracts students with passion and vision, and every corner of the campus was filled with students who thought that our little planet was beautiful, and they treated it like it mattered. They believed that the experiment of this funky little college mattered. Ask 10 different people what COA was about, and you'd get 15 different answers, but everyone thought it meant something, and whatever it was that we were up to could somehow make a difference. I began some of the closest friendships I would ever have, and they began slowly to widen my thinking. It was a core assumption of my survivalist ethos that technology was evil, something that only led to more destruction of the planet. But one night, my friend Steve blew my mind with the beauty of geodesic architecture, and suddenly, I wasn't so sure. Many of these fellow students carried their own deeply held dogmas, but one so different from my own. Radical feminists, earth-firsters, acid-dropping devotees of Terence McKenna and Timothy Leary, and poets and artists and peaceniks and back-to-the-landers and radical vegans. COA had me reeling. The world was so much bigger than I thought. On Wednesdays, I would sit in the college's great hall with a hundred other souls in the all-college meeting and listen to people debate whether to allow pets on campus and should smoking be prohibited. I joined the Academic Affairs Committee and spent most of my time on it trying to understand what the heck everyone was talking about. I said a whole bunch of naive and unrealistic things there, but the committee chair always listened no matter how naive and unrealistic I was, and always took what I said seriously. Instead of the ludicrous and seemingly intractable edicts of my junior high and high school, suddenly governance seemed very messy, with good points being made from all sides, and what before had seemed like a lack of conviction on the parts of my elders began to look more like the careful deliberations of thoughtful people who wanted to do good, but knew that the world was full of unintended consequences. And then there were my professors. One day, Gray Cox held class on the pier, and we were talking about economics, and I wondered out loud why we needed private property anyway. Wouldn't it be better if we just all took what we needed and shared the rest? And Gray, with a playful twinkle in his eye, grabbed my backpack and held it out over the water. So it'd be all right with you if I just dropped this in the ocean right now? I mean, you're not using it, are you? Another time in a literature class, I argued vociferously that a certain short story was all about the triumph of spirit over science. While some avowed scientist across the room argued just as vociferously that no, that story was about the triumph of science over superstition. And Karen Waldron, our professor, listened quietly, scrawling some notes on her pad and sipping her mug now and then, until she stopped us and directed us to a passage where the main character, a scientist, puts his colorful flasks full of various concoctions in the windows of his laboratory and let the sunlight shine through them. What if it's not either or, Karen asked. What if it's both and? 
And suddenly that story opened like the blossom of a flower right inside me. And I remember thinking that I thought I'd learned all there was to know about how to read and that I still actually had so much more to learn. And that here, sipping her tea next to me, was a true master of the craft. I had crash-landed on Dagobah, but Yoda wasn't who I expected he would be. Pay attention. You're about to learn something. I would spend many delicious hours taking notes and reading great and challenging books in a giant armchair of the COA library that overlooked the Porcupine Islands while winter winds threw ice against the windows. But I still struggled. I'd sold out. I was getting soft. There's a real world out there. And here I was reading books. And month after month, the debt kept growing, like cement poured around my feet or Jacob Marley's chains, invisible until it was too late. Maybe I should just stop. Leave school now before things got too deep. Maybe I could go and live at that yoga center in Massachusetts and wash dishes there and just meditate for a while and figure out what to do with my life. At least I'd be closer to Laura. That spring, I almost left COA. I think I would have, except for two conversations. The first was with my uncle Jamie. Jamie had always marched to the beat of a different drummer. He wrote poetry and lived in a cabin in Vermont and made his living as a hiking guide, driving from one park to another in an old van. And he'd always been a friend and a mentor, but also a kind of hero, right? Someone who had found a way to stay true to himself despite all the pressures to settle down and get a real job. And when he came to lead a trip in Acadia, he bought me dinner at a pub in Bar Harbor and I told him about my indecision and what I was going to do with my life. What am I, what am I going to do? I asked I don't know what I'm going to do. And Jamie smiled and he said, Ben, you don't need to know what you're going to do. Not capital D do anyway. All you need to decide is what you're going to do next. And the second conversation happened on a bright spring morning not two weeks later, when Karen Waldron found me slowly walking up the steps by the Beatrix Ferrand Gardens after class one day. And I told her I was thinking about leaving and that I doubted that this bookish life counted for anything real, and how I knew I couldn't run to the woods, but I still wanted to, and how what I really wanted was to be free. And the next day, I found a photocopied poem by Elizabeth Bishop in my mailbox. Continent, city, country, society, the choice is never wide and never free. And a handwritten note at the bottom that said, keep the faith. I stayed at COA all four years. After that, it's like I gave myself permission to accept the choice I had made to be there, to really be there, to admit to myself that I had always loved school, even in the darkest days of seventh grade. But in the end, school surprised me. It wasn't any of the things I thought it was job training, or a torture chamber, or a tool of the man. Or maybe it was all those things, but it was also so much more. Looking back at it now, I think that this insight wasn't just one realization, but lots of overlapping ones. And even now, I still find it hard to sum up 
But with this telling, I'm thinking of four important ways that my perspective shifted that spring. First, when my Uncle Jamie told me that all I had to decide was what I wanted to do next, I realized just how much I'd been treating school as being about getting a job. I don't think I'm the first person to make this mistake. But look at my schooling and you tell me what it prepared me to do. I learned to read Shakespeare and Toni Morrison. I learned to conjugate a few beautiful French verbs. I learned to name constellations and laugh about how negative exponents actually made sense, despite my conviction that they never would. I learned how evolution so perfectly shaped the body of a whale. And I learned to write essays like this one to explain how a few lines of poetry can change the course of your life. What profession could possibly require this random admixture of skills? There is no job like that. It is certainly true that schools can and do prepare us for satisfying work, but that is not what school is for. What Karen gave me with that poem wasn't career advice. It was a treasured insight into the important work of being a short-lived human on this green earth. Science and history and math and poetry each have their practical value, but that is not why we do them. We do math because it gives us a window into the mind of God. We do science because we ache with curiosity in the same way that we sometimes ache with love. When I shifted from thinking about what I wanted to do to what I wanted to do next, school changed from a very serious business to a gift. Suddenly, all around me, I saw these people who were saying, look here, look here, these are the most beautiful things that humans have ever found. These are the best things that we have ever done. And school, especially public schools, give those things away to anyone who wants them. I cannot think of a more fitting monument to the generosity of our species. So that was my first realization. And here's my second. School is not a building. It's not a campus. It's not a classroom. It's not a system. A school is a group of people. My late-night conversation about geodesic design with Steve wasn't incidental to school. That was school. In seventh grade, I had thought that I wanted all those jerks to go away. But while that might have been safe and comfortable, that wouldn't have been school at all. You can teach yourself trigonometry from a textbook, but there is a reason that human beings gather together to do it with each other. Math and science and art, all of these disciplines are just conversations. They are conversations that have been going on for centuries, and they require people to converse with because all human knowledge is just one big collective exchange of ideas. And it doesn't just make us smarter because we stand on the shoulders of giants, as Newton said, and so we don't have to reinvent the wheel every generation. It makes us smarter because it brings us face to face with all kinds of minds and all kinds of ideas, especially the ones we disagree with. 
My dream of a wandering life lived in harmony with the earth was a beautiful dream, but it was small. It was the dream of a kid who really only considered two options, the cul-de-sac or the forest, because that was all he knew. School introduced me to a big, rich world. It introduced me to people who wanted things I hadn't even imagined. It opened doors not because it gave me job opportunities, but because it gave me new dreams. And this, I think, is why despots and zealots and demagogues have always feared it, or have tried to control it. Because dreams are even harder to control than people. School doesn't foment revolution. School is revolution. It is a group of people seeking as best they can to learn the truth. So there's two, beauty and fellowship, two great gifts of school that transformed my life. And here's a third, humility. When I started college, I knew everything that was wrong with the world, and I knew that civilization was going to destroy itself, and I knew that it was only the people who could live the pure life of true survival who would inherit what remained. I was a fundamentalist, but lesson by lesson, school revealed my self-righteous judgments for what they were. Gray Cox holding my backpack out over the water at the pier, or Karen showing me that I hardly knew how to read. Self-governance taught me how to listen before I spoke. Pay attention. You're about to learn something. I came face to face over and over again with my ignorance, with all of our ignorance. That degree was in human ecology. And the central metaphor of ecology is a web, a vast tangle of connections, a focus on the fact that the world is more complicated than all our algorithms can compute. And after four years of living every day with the implications of that idea, I found in myself a growing sense of my own fallibility. This mantra in the back of my mind that I might be wrong about this. You might think that when so many cherished assumptions were dismantled that it would have freaked me out. And you'd be right, it always did. At least at first. But after a while, after the freakout was over, I just got comfortable being unmoored in a world that I knew I'd never completely understand. And the great gift of letting go into that humility was a profound and playful curiosity. I had been the guy who loved a system, loved programs, and school had always had plenty of them. But stick with any of them long enough, and the program always breaks down. If I wanted to keep learning, I'd have to let go. In my subsequent years at COA, I realized that all of my notes about wilderness survival had taken me as far as they could. And so, while I was there, I started actually messing around with bow drills and wild edible plants. I found friends who also dreamed of wandering in wild places, unencumbered by all that stuff. And we would drive up to this old woodsman's place and learn to make our own snowshoes and spruce bark containers. It was a lot messier than a collection of field guides. But I was finally ready for messy. Beauty, fellowship, humility, and one final lesson, perspective. 
as much as I might want it to be otherwise, school wasn't necessarily about me. All that talk about tuition and student loans had me focused on what I was entitled to from school. I'd bought it. I was paying for it. But COA made me aware that while I was wrapped up in all that entitlement, I'd neglected to ask what I might owe school. At COA, an ethos of stewardship permeated everything. You couldn't go a day without being reminded that our planet needed our wise protection as much as we needed its sustaining resources. I had already cultivated, I think, a real reverence for those things before. But school in general, and COA in particular, made me realize that there was another heritage that needed to be safeguarded. Science and art and literature and learning They were fragile and sacred traditions, in and of themselves. And if I had learned to love them, it behooved me to take care of them too. If these traditions were, as I'd come to realize, a collection of ongoing conversations, then the only reason that I'd gotten to partake in them was because thousands of other minds had come before and had passed that conversation along to me. And if the hearts and minds of the future were going to have them when they needed them like I did, They were relying on me to do my small part in keeping those conversations going. School, for all its problems, for all its shortcomings, is our first best way of keeping the candles of knowledge lit in the great darkness of this universe. The day before my graduation from COA, I sat in one of the booths of Take a Break, COA's cozy little cafeteria, with the writer Terry Tempest Williams. She had gracefully accepted our invitation to deliver that year's commencement address, and I got to talk with her about writing and the environment, and about ecstatic and transcendent experiences in nature, which had been the topic of my thesis. And mostly I tried not to be starstruck. And the next day, as I stood in the tent they erected for the ceremony out next to the rope swing on the north lawn, I was handed an embossed piece of paper to certify that I had indeed spent four years there as a student, and I cannot think of a better way to have spent that time. For many people, a diploma is a personal victory, sometimes against incredible odds. But no diploma is merely the work of the recipient. Behind every single graduate are the ghosts of hundreds or thousands of people who have held them up to the light of learning. In comparison to so many stories of struggle, mine was privileged and easy. But it still would not have happened without so many. There was Mrs. Dombrowski, who adapted Dolly Parton's song to teach me that adding nine to five, that's a way to make a 14. (laughs) And there was Mrs. McGinn, my seventh grade teacher, who, during my darkest days, once put her hand on my shoulder and told me that when I ran for president, she would vote for me. And there was Fran Delafera, who stood up to the bullies who tormented me in that locker room. And Mr. Sip, who gave me a life-changing book. And there was Tom Brown and Annie Dillard and Elizabeth Bishop. And there was Miss Crowley, who hosted the high school drama club and gave refuge to so many kids who didn't seem to fit anywhere else. And Karen Waldron and Gray Cox and my Uncle Jamie. There were so many 
friends and fellow human ecologists who made COA my family as well as my school. And behind it all, there was an army, an army of unsung and largely unknown lives that did the thankless work of mowing lawns and fixing leaky roofs and keeping the records and figuring out how they're going to keep the school running despite the budget cuts. Because a school may not be a building, but it is awfully hard to hold school without one. And COA, if you are listening, you are perfect. I really couldn't have asked for a better place to be. It is no accident that your address is Eden Street. And most of all, for my mom and dad, who somehow knew how much I'd love school even when I couldn't imagine it myself. Thank you for your wisdom and your patience and your love. I still have the complete works of Tom Brown on my shelf, dog-eared and underlined, their bindings now as fragile as the family Bible. But these days, they're a little dusty. I did eventually learn to survive for weeks in the wilderness with little more than a knife. And a few weeks, it turned out, was enough. The world was big, and so I came back from the wilderness for more of it, for more poetry, more experience, more companionship than the life of a wilderness wanderer would have afforded. I still keep a ridiculous number of notebooks, and there's still many a night that I just write myself to sleep by diagramming lengthy sentences from a 19th century travel memoir or organizing French grammar rules by parts of speech. And I still find it troubling that we've developed a system where most students leave school with debts that will take them over a decade to repay, and that the cost of a college education is an insurmountable obstacle to those who stand the most to gain from it. But I also must say that when I wrote the final check on my student loans, I didn't regret a single cent. When you find a pearl of great price, you sell everything you have to buy it. I Heart This is written, edited, and produced by me, Ben Lord. Our logo was designed by Bryony Morrow-Cribs. Our theme song was used with permission from neosounds.com. New episodes are released on the 14th of every month. Though, just to let you know, we'll be taking a few months off after this year's season finishes up in November. You can listen to our show and read the full script of every episode at our website, iheartthispodcast.com, and check us out on Facebook at iheartthispodcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider sharing it with someone who you think would like it. Got a teacher in your life? Send them a link. Share us on your socials or write us a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, be kind, be curious, and be thankful.